Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, listeners. We hope you enjoy Tuesday's special episode of Stay Tuned, brought to you by the Amazon original motion picture, The Report. We spoke to Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Mark Mazzetti about covering the national security beat, and Daniel J. Jones, the former Senate staffer who investigated the CIA's secret detention and interrogation program implemented after the September 11th attacks. His story is told in The Report. See it in theaters starting tomorrow, November 15th, and on Prime Video starting November 29th. Thanks again to Mark and Daniel. Listen to the Stay Tuned episode anytime and see the report starting tomorrow. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. There were in the 1930s eloquent writers, including poets and artists and filmmakers, who defended liberalism. And their defense of liberalism in the 1930s was crucial to the success of the New Deal for all of its limitations for failing to address Jim Crow. And I'm not sure that we have, at this moment, that same defense. That's Jill Lepore. She's a professor of American history at Harvard University, an author, and a staff writer at The New Yorker. Her most recent work, These Truths, tackles the history of America, wrestling with the aspiration and the oppression, the triumphant and the atrocious, to try and build a bridge between battling interpretations of our world. Lepore and I talk about how to make an argument without losing a reader, why the study of history is becoming as polarized as politics, and whether the rules of evidence exist outside the courtroom. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, folks, I'm taping this on Wednesday, November 13th, about halfway through hour six of the first open hearing with respect to impeachment in the House. So I haven't heard all of it. Uh, Maybe new things will develop between now and the time you listen to this tomorrow. But I have a few observations to make for what they're worth. First, overall, I think the hearing, which featured two witnesses, Ambassador Bill Taylor and State Department official George Kent, I think in the main, there was more light generated than heat. I think there was some clarification of some of the points that Democrats have been trying to make about the conduct of the president. I think overall, none of the witnesses had any of their testimony damaged or undermined, not even in a small way. They were pretty orderly as these things go. I think that the whole process benefited tremendously from this change in format. 
whereby the chair and the vice chair, along with their main counsels, undertook a majority of the questioning once the witness statements were made. I will comment separately about the performance of each of those folks. Adam Schiff, for his part, as the chair, did his usual job of being you know, pretty firm, pretty clear, pretty fact-based. He was, of course, as you might expect, attacked by the other side for various things, including the mistake that he made at one of the earlier hearings when he repeated in an exaggerated form the contents of the call between President Trump and President Zelensky. Devin Nunes, for his part, in his opening statement, spent a lot of his time repeating various talking points, seemed to favor some of the president's catchphrases, some of which were that the Democrats are engaged in an orchestrated media smear campaign. He referred again to secret depositions, attacking the process, even though those depositions were not secret by any normal measure. Republicans had an opportunity to be at those depositions. And as we have seen, the transcripts of those depositions are basically being made public on a rolling basis. He spent some time in advance of the public testimony of these two witnesses attacking as a general matter all of the folks who might say something negative about the president. He used somewhat colorful language, attacking what he expected to be a theatrical performance. And he essentially said, you know, since the Mueller investigation kind of fizzled out, he congratulated the witnesses on passing star chamber auditions to be cast in a low-rent Ukrainian sequel. I'm not sure that was persuasive to the general public, but it's strong language that probably pleased at least one person. Here are the couple of things that I was struck by in terms of the overall framing of the hearing from the perspective of the chairman. We've seen this before, but this was the first time I've seen in such a deliberate, conscious, sustained way, the chairman and the other Democrats putting all of this conduct in context. So in many ways, the focus was not just on the self-dealing by the president and the abuse of power by the president, but also a focus on why this was important how this was a threat to not only Ukrainian security, but also to U.S. national security. The questions presented by this impeachment inquiry are whether President Trump sought to exploit that ally's vulnerability and invite Ukraine's interference in our elections, whether President Trump sought to condition official acts, such as a White House meeting or U.S. military assistance, on Ukraine's willingness to assist with two political investigations that would help his re-election campaign. And if President Trump did either, whether such an abuse of his power is compatible with the office of the presidency. Many of the points made by Adam Schiff and others in the questions and statements brought home a point that Ann Milgram and I discussed on the Cafe Insider podcast this week. It's not just that the president of the United States, in connection with this alleged extortion scheme, that he did things that were not in the interest of the United States. He did things that were directly at odds with the interests of the United States undermining the United States national security at multiple junctures. Both Adam Schiff and other members of Congress asked Kent and asked Taylor to describe exactly why this was a problem. Among other things, the aid being withheld was something that caused, directly or indirectly, the deaths of Ukrainian soldiers as they're trying to hold Russian forces at bay. I thought that was illuminating and smart to make sure that the American people understand that what's at stake here is not just the president trying to do something for himself, you know, a campaign dirty trick but doing it at the expense of American national security. I thought my friend and former colleague, Daniel Goldman, did a terrific job of being clear and to the point, used his time effectively. You know, in some ways, he was not trying to elicit new information. A lot of the testimony of the witnesses, with one very notable exception, which I'll mention in a moment, was not new. It was known because there had been extensive depositions, and the transcripts of those depositions have already been released. So I think partly what was trying to be accomplished here was to explain in a clear way in television-ready moments, which is important in a democracy where public sentiment matters, what the essential features of the argument are, what the essential worries are about the president's conduct. So part of what was affected about Dan Goldman's questioning was he would ask from time to time Bill Taylor to read something from his testimony 
or read something from the readout of the call between the President of the United States and President Zelensky. That was not revelatory. That served mostly to do the kinds of thing that people were hoping Bob Mueller would do in his testimony, who, you know, very officiously said he would refuse to read any aspects of his own report, even though he was the author of it. That was less compelling television. This was more compelling television for that reason. And again, I don't say that in a negative way. I think it's important for people who are very, very busy, don't have time to read extensive reports, don't watch the news 24 hours a day, to understand in simple fashion what's at stake here and how the facts unfolded with respect to the Ukraine incident. In fact, in one of my favorite moments of the entire hearing, and I speak because of my parochial interest and friendship with Dan Goldman, he began a line of questions with Bill Taylor saying, I want to spend a little time reading the transcript as we've been encouraged to do, which is obviously a sly reference to the president's repeated statement. Read the transcript, read the transcript. You've seen that there are people who are wearing T-shirts, supporters of the president wearing T-shirts saying, read the transcript, many of whom look like they've never read any transcript, much less that transcript, because the transcript is devastating. I want to spend just a a little time uh, reading the transcript, um, as we've been encouraged to do. And I want to particularly note four excerpts um, of the transcript. One that relates to the security assistance we've been talking about. Another that discusses a favor that President Trump asked of President Zelensky. A third where President Trump asks the Ukrainian president to investigate his political opponent, former Vice President Biden. And then a final one where the Ukrainian president directly links the desired White House visit to the political investigations that President Trump wanted. The Republican counsel, Steve Castor, whom I do not know personally, for his part, did not do such a clear job. Now, on the one hand, it could be argued that he hadn't prepared well. It looked like he was winging it a little bit. He was asking questions, the answers to which he clearly did not know on a number of occasions, which is something you don't do when you have limited time and it's a public forum like that, and you've had ample time to prepare, and you've seen a lot of the deposition, in fact, hopefully all the deposition testimony of the witnesses. On the other hand, you could argue that he doesn't have a lot to work with. And both he and Devin Nunes spent a lot of time not sort of attacking the central allegations of the Ukraine scandal, but rather talking about collateral issues and conspiracy theories that they think some people in the public might view justifies the reasons why Donald Trump was asking for this investigation, that it went to general corruption as opposed to what the clear language suggests and what the surrounding circumstances show that he was interested in Ukraine announcing an investigation of his most dominant political rival at the time. With respect to Dan Goldman's questioning, this is a point that's been made before, but I don't think it's been made as clearly and powerfully as this, and it's not getting as much attention. And the point is this. Through questioning of Bill Taylor, Dan Goldman established that what was clearly important to the president, to the White House, was that Mr. Zelensky of Ukraine, or some other official in Ukraine, make a public announcement that they were investigating Burisma and the Bidens. Or at a minimum, they were investigating Burisma, which obviously implicates the Bidens. And the reason that's important is this. If the president's general interest was simply to be anti-corruption, as a lot of his allies in the committee today attested to, and that it had nothing to do with the fact that one object of the investigation would be a political rival, if it was just general corruption, then the important thing about that is that the investigation be undertaken. Much less important that it be publicly known the investigation was being undertaken. In fact, it seemed clear that what the president cared about more than the investigation itself was the announcement of the investigation, that it be public. And why would that be? Well, common sense tells you the reason for that is because that is a thing that will cast an aspersion on Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. And that's what the president was after. So the amount of intensity of feeling about the announcement being public as opposed to confidential or private is significant. I thought Dan Goldman did a good job of bringing that point home. 
But I don't want to spend all my time talking about the lawyers and the members of Congress who are asking questions because as judges warn juries in criminal cases, what the lawyers say is not evidence. What the witnesses say is evidence. And I think there were a couple of very formidable witnesses today. I will confess that I personally might not have put George Kent together with Bill Taylor. I think George Kent was a great witness. Um, I think he was a, a credible witness. And I think he showed a lot of integrity. But clearly the majority of questions went to Bill Taylor. The majority of the speaking time went to Bill Taylor. I have never seen, I said this on Twitter earlier, I've never seen a witness prior to questioning before any kind of committee be given that much time to make an opening statement. I don't have the timing in front of me, but I think it went easily 30, 35, 40 minutes, which I think was smart to allow a person like Bill Taylor to get his story out because not everyone read his written statement. First, a word about his demeanor. Uh, His demeanor and the way he presented himself matched every bit his resume of rectitude and public service. Some people commented in a cosmetic and potentially frivolous way that he has a radio announcer voice. I kept thinking he'd make a good podcaster, actually. But these things matter when you're going to have public proceedings. Uh, He had an air of gravitas about him, which gave him an air of credibility, backed up by the substance of what he was saying. In large part, I think he made headway with respect to public understanding of what's going on here just by repeating clearly many of the things he said in his deposition. But there was one bit of new news that I think is very significant and further damaging to the president. And also, by the way, in connection with these kinds of things, a combination of reaffirmation of what went before and restatement of prior testimony combined with some new revelation along the same lines helps to propel the story, give the investigation momentum, allows people to say it was useful to have it because there was new information gleaned. And what was that new information? Essentially, Bill Taylor added to his testimony something he didn't know before. A few days ago, he found out about an incident from July 26th. Remember, July 26th is the day after Donald Trump made the phone call to President Zelensky. And at the time, Bill Taylor was out of the country with Ambassador Volker, I believe, in Ukraine. And he relates, and yes, it is admittedly hearsay, but he, for what it's worth, told the committee this, and they'll be able to confirm this. He said that a member of his staff, a member of Bill Taylor's staff, accompanied EU Ambassador Sondland for a meeting with an advisor to President Zelensky. That advisor's name is Mr. Yermak. And following that meeting on July 26th, he testified, in the presence of my staff at a restaurant, Ambassador Sondland called President Trump and told him of his meetings in Kiev. And then Taylor goes on to say, the member of my staff could hear President Trump on the phone. I guess President Trump was talking a bit loud. So he could hear President Trump on the phone asking Ambassador Sondland about the, quote, investigations. Ambassador Sondland told President Trump that the Ukrainians were ready to move forward, close quote, presumably with the investigations. Taylor goes on to say, quote, following the call with President Trump, the member of my staff asked Ambassador Sondland what President Trump thought about Ukraine. Ambassador Sondland responded that President Trump cares more about the investigations of Biden. Following the call with President Trump, the member of my staff asked Ambassador Sondland what President Trump thought about Ukraine. Ambassador Sondland responded that President Trump cares more about the investigations of Biden, which Giuliani was pressing for. So that's new information, indirect, but gives further substantiation and weight to the argument that President Trump was not doing something in the national interest he didn't care about Ukraine, that what he cared about was a public announcement that would undermine the candidacy of his opponent. Now, there's an argument to be made about things that a witness says that come from someone else that are speculative and not concrete or unclear, especially if those witnesses are not ever going to be found. And good Lord will make such an argument, but you can't carry it too far. In this case, I saw members of Congress at the break deriding the testimony as being all full of hearsay, which, by the way, is ironic for another reason, because the other thing I saw them do over and over and over again was say, where's the whistleblower? 
where's the whistleblower? Presumably they want the whistleblower to come forward so they can denigrate that testimony as being secondhand. So there's some irony in these criticisms. But as the hearing was unfolding, there was a report that the actual staffer who has firsthand knowledge of the conversation between President Trump and Ambassador Sondland will be coming to the Congress for behind-closed-door testimony as soon as Friday. Like with a lot of other arguments that the Republicans have been making, you make an argument on day one that there should be a vote, then there's a vote, then that argument gets taken away. You make an argument on day two that the deposition should be released, then they are. It takes that argument away. Then you make an argument the next day saying there should be public hearings, and then they hold them. It takes that argument away too. And I suspect much of the same thing is going to happen with respect to these hearsay arguments. One other thing that I thought added to the credibility of both Kent and Sondland, on a few occasions, they were asked the direct question, what in the call or what with respect to this conduct do you find impeachable? And both refused to answer. And I saw some people on social media and elsewhere, including Ari Fleischer, former White House spokesperson, say, I thought oddly, that that was one of the biggest moments of the day that they couldn't say that those things were impeachable. Well, I think it's a point in their favor, because that's not their job. Those are witnesses testifying as to what they knew, what they heard, and what they said. And I think it would actually undermine their credibility if they came there with an agenda in favor of impeachment, or they came there to opine on whether or not members of Congress should vote one way or another. And I thought Bill Taylor was very effective and credible and honorable by saying over and over and over again that he wasn't there to side with any particular outcome. He was there to explain what he saw, heard, and knew, and that's all. And other people can make what they want of it. So the idea that that was somehow favorable to the president, that they wouldn't sit there and direct a particular vote for members of Congress, I thought was odd. So all in all, folks, I I have a lot more to say about the details of what happened today. There's another public hearing happening on Friday with Marie Yovanovitch, former ambassador to Ukraine. And Milgram and I will talk about all this at much greater length and in greater depth next Monday on the Cafe Insider podcast. But my conclusion all in all today is that it was a good, sober, clear-eyed, dignified proceeding. There were a lot of efforts to obstruct and to call attention to various procedural issues. I thought Adam Schiff handled that well. He didn't get dragged into the muck. He continued with what he wanted to do. Questions were asked. Questions were answered. The witnesses acquitted themselves well. And if this is how the future hearings are going to go, I think the public will learn a lot about it. And it might shift people's opinions, although you never know how much people will change their minds given the bubbles that so many folks live in. After Yovanovitch on Friday, the committee has announced another set of public hearings as well. So get ready to be glued to your television and also to this podcast. Next week on Tuesday, we have Jennifer Williams and Alexander Vindman. In the afternoon, we have Kurt Volker and Tim Morrison. On Wednesday morning, we have a very important witness who is somebody who has changed his testimony and may have to change his testimony yet again, given how much he's been talked about, EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland. Then the afternoon, we have Laura Cooper and David Hale. And then on Thursday, we have another witness, Fiona Hill. That'll be interesting also, given what her deposition showed with respect to her demeanor of not taking any nonsense from any member of Congress. One more quick note, folks. I'm really excited to announce that one of my former colleagues, Chief of Organized Crime, Ellie Honig, will be joining CAFE as a contributor. And every week, he'll be giving you his analysis on Friday mornings in the CAFE Brief. Looking forward to that. To sign up for the free Cafe Brief, go to cafe.com slash brief. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. 
That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. My guest this week is Harvard professor Jill Lepore. She's a prolific author, and her most recent tome is These Truths, A History of the United States, which delves into the thick of competing historical narratives about this country, wrestling with larger questions about America's past and what it teaches us about the present and portends for the future. An avid archivist with a love of writing 4,000-word essays, Lepore believes that academic historians should not only accept that their work will be challenged, but also be willing to revise it when presented with new scholarship. We talk about one question journalists should stop asking historians today, how to study the Trump era without Trump himself, one topic on which Lepore cannot restrain herself, and why there's an argument to be made that America has always lived in divided times. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Professor Jill Lepore, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's a real treat to have you. We have a lot of things to talk about, past, present, future. When you have someone on who has a book, we usually mention the book and we'll talk about the book, but you have two books so recent in time that maybe we should mention both of them. One, These Truths, A History of the United States, very unambitious, uh, <laughs> an ambitious track, pretty short. It runs to, um, well, you're required to bring it in under a thousand pages. Yeah, you know, I think otherwise you have to split it into two volumes and you can't have that. And then you wrote a shorter book called This America, The Case for the Nation. We think of that as These Little Truths Around My These house. Little... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, one could be... Is one a sequel of the other? The, this America is in some ways a digest of an argument that's implied. And These Truths 
it's not an excerpt of it. It's a standalone. Right, but it was not yeah. your way of getting around the thousand page limit. No, like no, 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 no. It's not an addendum. Okay. No, no, no. It's, it's not an addendum. <laughs> so you and I share a fondness for a particular historical figure. So I wanted to start with that because he had a great influence on me, the most famous criminal defense lawyer of all time, Clarence Darrow. And I have said before that one of the reasons I decided to go to law school is I read Inherit the Wind, mm -hmm. which is a sort of fictionalized account of yeah. the Scopes trial, the monkey trials, which we'll talk about in a second. And then I read, I was telling my team when we were talking about this interview and how you talk about Darrow in your book, I read two biographies of Clarence Darrow in college. I delivered in speech competitions a portion of his closing argument in the case of The People versus Henry Sweet. And I quote from him in my book and in a lot of speeches I give. And there's something about his message for me that justice is not done only by law, it's done by people. But let's talk a little bit more about why he's important in American history. Yeah, I love Darrow, too. And I think I, <laughs> less geeky than you, I'm embarrassed to say, probably never read Inherit the Wind, but saw the movie when I was a kid. The original. Spencer Tracy Spencer movie. Spencer Tracy. Right. It's great. Never saw, it's, I think it was a play for a long time, too, right? Yeah. I never saw the play. It's a great movie. It was a 64, maybe. Well, you were I, used, I, owned, I used to own the VHS tape yeah, for the young people. So that's that's a, that's <laughs> so a primitive form that's of, right. of it's just, it's like entertainment. A, it's like a cave painting. I don't know if you can, and you know, even there are no discs anymore. I wonder if it's on Netflix. I didn't understand at the time that the play and the film were really about McCarthyism, right? So I always understood Darrow through the lens of McCarthy, which is completely ahistorical. <laughs> Darrow was a progressive era defense attorney, attorney for the damned. Attorney for the damned. Yeah. That's, one of the, that's one of the biographies I read. I read an assignment to write about Darrow a few years ago because two biographies about Darrow came out in the same year. I don't know, it's just not, not, not the time when you were a young person, but maybe four or five years ago, something like that. And they were both very good. I came across this case, case in which he defended, this was like a factory town, it was a lumber town, the Payne, George Payne Lumber Mills or something, and the workers had organized and Darrow came in to defend them against this giant company. Unbelievably good, good story. Every case Darrow was involved in is an incredible story. Yeah, you know, well, the like, Scope trial, the Scope trial was about what? Okay, so the Scope trial is 1925. This is the thing that Darrow's most known for because of Inherit the Wind. Um, it also was in many ways his most famous case. Darrow rarely took fees for his work, but he was essentially recruited by the ACLU to defend John Scopes, who had engaged in the breaking of a law on behalf, essentially, of the ACLU in 1925. Scopes was a biology teacher in Tennessee, and the Tennessee legislature had recently passed a law criminalizing the teaching of evolution. So Scopes broke the law by teaching evolution, and then in a kind of show trial, was tried in this very small town of Dayton, Tennessee. And reporters from all over the country flocked to this tiny little town, and it became a whole circus. Well, in, in part because of who the lawyers were. Because of who the lawyers were. Clarence so, Darrow, at the time, most famous lawyer known, yeah. in the country, right? Yeah. There's no figure like him. There I, really isn't. In our world, no. It's sad in a way. Yeah. And then on the other side... William Jennings Bryan, who, who did, among other things... Four-time presidential <laughs> candidate, uh, I mean, what, the great what, commoner. What would, be the, what would be the equivalent today on a hot-button sort of social, religious, political issue in a small town pick a famous defense lawyer, and then on yeah, the Jeff other side... Sessions on the, or something on the on other, other side. side like Mitt and, Romney yeah, or someone yeah. who ran for president multiple yeah. times or John Kerry or someone like that. It's kind of nuts. Yeah. So this is an extraordinary battle. And again, so I, my entire understanding of the battle had come from, <laughs> come from the film. When I set about to work on this book, I went back and read the coverage all over again. I mean, I read the newspaper coverage and I read quite fascinating biography of Brian uh, called A Godly Hero that the um, Michael Kazan, who's the editor of Descent, wrote a few years ago, brilliant biography of Brian. 
And I knew a lot about Darrow. I was, you know, of course, like my hero. I'm right. rooting for Darrow. You know, <laughs> how could they have this law? This is nuts. And then I reexamined the whole story and ends up being much more complicated than Inherit the Wind presents it as being. And it was one of the more fun pieces of the research I did for the big history of the United States, these truths, because I got fascinated by, so Walter Lippmann also fascinates me. He's a very prominent political commentator of the progressive era. He read the accounts afterward, and then he wrote a short book about it called American Inquisitors. And Lippmann kind of got to the heart of what he saw as the problem with the Scopes trial. We, in our mind, think that it marks the defeat of fundamentalism. Brian lost the, lost the case, and he died five days later. So he never sort of says a word again, is never able to kind of vindicate the portrayal of him in the press that he was a yokel, that he was daft. He was made fun of. He was, he was kind of humiliated. made fun right? of. And, and yeah. Darrow humiliated him. Yeah. He, he actually called, Darrow called Brian to the stand to defend fundamentalism, to defend the literal interpretation of the Bible uh, as historically true. And it turns out Darrow was able to expose that William James Bryan, for all of his fame as Mr. Fundamentalism, wasn't really a particularly good reader of the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) He couldn't really defend, you know, the age of the earth, for instance. They brought in like these geologists from Oberlin to talk about how we know the age of the earth and how it's incommensurate with the knowledge of the Bible. But Lippmann raised this really interesting question in this essay called American Inquisitors. And he said, okay, so there's these two sort of theories. On the one hand, we believe the majority should rule and the majority governs. We also believe in kind of an enlightenment idea that of a kind of scientific method that we get to the bottom of questions involving truth or falsehood by the act of inquiry. So we have kind of two different paths toward truth. The people know, the will of the people has a kind of knowledge to it. And uh, the scientific method gets us to truth. And in Tennessee, as, as Lippmann pointed out, the people of Tennessee decided as to elect a government that decided to say that Darwin was wrong. Well, then who wins that incommensurability between a kind of scientific method? Because so far as science understood at the time, and still does, Darwin was right. Can the people of Tennessee say that Darwin is wrong? I mean, it kind of just prefigures our climate change denialism, these two divergent epistemologies. Well, I mean, because we're talking about science, but, you know, that same principle is at stake when you're talking about Jim Crow in the South. Local citizens elected certain kinds of people who really didn't want people of color to vote. Who's to say that's not right? Um, you know, I say that's not right. And so the other side should have won in that case. How do these controversies get decided then? How should they be? Well, I mean, Lippmann was, was suggesting that will always be a problem. I mean, this was the sort of the problem of what Lippmann was, would have understood as the age of propaganda, the emergence of kind of mass communications by which people who had ideas that had been defrocked, like scientific racism could nevertheless propagate them through the forms of mass communication and convince people that these dethroned ideas were in fact true and that this was a danger. So Lippmann said, like, the government should establish truth bureaus. Like, there, people are still struggling with what the remedy is. But what I thought was so interesting and where I felt really glad to have had the chance to revisit the story of the Scopes trial is that I hadn't really quite understood that William Jennings Bryant wasn't the idiot that Darrow made him out to be. I wouldn't have voted for the guy. Like, I wouldn't have, if he was in our world, I would I would not be a William Jennings Bryan fan. What the scholarship has uncovered and had been uh, really missing from earlier accounts is that Bryan objected not to the teaching of evolution on the sense that he sort of had, like, an argument against Darwin or the scientific method. Bryan's error was to conflate Darwinism and social Darwinism. And Bryan, as a populist and the great commoner, the champion of the poor, where he completely agreed with Darrow. I mean, they had their politics were quite similar. Brian decided that the last thing poor kids in Tennessee needed was for their textbooks to teach them that only the fit survive, that the weak and the deformed and the damaged should be left to die, that the species would endure, which is not Darwin's teaching, but was a teaching of social Darwinists, the kind of the the sort of uh, pseudoscience of the eugenics movement. 
And Brian quite passionately opposed that. And there's something I find quite stirring about insisting then that that was a dangerous thing to teach poor kids in Tennessee. Makes him a much more complicated character. Yeah, because those things are not parallel, even though they share a term. Right. <laughs> yeah, they're not. They're right. Not like the same to, thing to believe at in all. evolution is not to believe that the poor shouldn't get relief. <laughs> right, right. Darwin had a practice of representing, maybe not so much in this case, but in many cases, representing folks who were held in great contempt by the public, unpopular clients, people who had murdered, people who had done terrible things. Do you think we've lost that a little bit in the country? Yes. Why do you say that? That's a yes or no question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, you know, it used to be an article of faith among lawyers, which is tested from time to time, that you take on unpopular clients and there's nobility in representing people mm-hmm. in criminal cases. The Constitution, not back then, but the court has now held more recently than people realize that everyone is entitled to a lawyer if you're accused of a crime and at no cost if you can't afford one. Back then, that wasn't the case. But from time to time, whether it's a terrorist or some other person that society has deemed more contemptuous than others, people look down on the lawyers who defend them. Why do you think that's happened? I think it's part of a much broader cultural change, a kind of seeping away and diminishment of long fought for and precious commitments to the rule of law. You know, you would line that up with a number of other features about public life. But yeah, I mean, you see all over the place instances where people who are engaged in the work of defending accused people whose offenses society would agree are reprehensible, rather than being celebrated for their courage in doing so, or at a minimum, respected for their commitment to the rule of law and to due process in doing so, are reviled as if they're act of defending. The act. As if the defense itself is a moral failing. So can we talk about your book? We can talk about it. The big one? Was it hard? It was a fun challenge. I like writing essays, like a 4,000-word essay is my favorite thing to write. And this was, a you know, not a sprint, but a marathon. I am that person, like when I was in graduate school, I loved doing qualifying exams. We have to read like 200 books and you have to read three <laughs> books a day and are four you, books by lunchtime. Reader? Do you read fast? I am a just very discriminating reader. I can tell what part of a book I need to eat and what part I can just, you know, so pick does that, at. So this is fascinating to me because I'm a terribly slow reader and I don't read as much as I might because it just, it just takes me a long time and I'm not good at skimming. And I read, this is a problem I've had since college. I read basically at the same speed, whether it's like light fluff mm. or it's, you know, deeply serious philosophy. For some mm-hmm. reason, I just read at a particular speed. I had a competitive advantage if the material was complex yeah. because I was reading it at a faster pace than right. maybe some other folks. Right. But when it was, you know, simple, easy magazine reading, I still read it very slowly. How'd you learn how to get through material quickly? When I was in graduate school, I had a friend who said, when you're doing orals exams, you have to divide your reading list. You have to give every book a grade, A, B, or C, before you begin. If it's on your list, it's at least a C. It's just like the, the really, truly crappy books, the Ds and the Fs are not going to be on your list. But if it's at least a C, well, then you read the introduction and the conclusion and you kind of page through a chapter to see what the evidence is and how the, how the style of argument works. So B, you're going to read a couple sample chapters beyond that. And if it's an A, you have to read the whole book. I found it fairly easy to sort books into these categories, and it's a terribly embarrassing thing to confess because it's just a cheat. But on the other hand, the way historical scholarship happens to work is most of the book is actually not necessary to read because no one tells a story anymore, right? This is academic scholarship where in the introduction you lay out your argument, in the conclusion you state it all over again. And in between, when there's really no reason to read all the different instances of your illustrations, you offer up some some accounts of how this might be true. Have you written any books like that? 
No, I don't think so. I, you know, and I went to graduate. Yours are all A's. You no. Know, would you <laughs> well, give no, all I your books? books an, are all A's in that would sense. you give this one an A? You, you should because you're on the podcast you so people can hear you. Yeah, okay, it's an A. You can't <laughs> okay. do that with, say, fiction. Like, you can't pick up a novel no. and say, let me just read sample chapters, right? The way right. fiction works is you have to read from beginning to end because there's suspense and things develop. And a plot. And there's a plot right. and the characters develop and things change. And so if you write history the way a novel works, you can't use that method. So I would say, I would like to, in my. <laughs> In my more ambitious moments, like to think that scheme doesn't work if you're writing narrative history, which is what I generally do. So if you had this on your list, your tract, how would you go about reading it? Yeah, this is a book I would read the whole thing of because you ha- you, you're you trying to watch, and fair enough, a problem with the few sweeping histories of the United States we have is that they're written as textbooks and they have, they're written really as reference works yeah. where you could, you could look up something in the index and then read a paragraph and you're like, oh good, I understand about the Homestead Act of 1862. Right. But why that would have to have any relationship with the larger history of Plains Indian warfare, say, or the notion of uh, household economy or changing gender, like it wouldn't, has no attachment to any other idea. So who's it for? I mean, I was asked to write a textbook, yeah. and I said, you know, I was so sure we could do the new textbook. It's like any other field. There needs to be new textbooks every few years. But I felt that the more urgent need was for ordinary people. Like, when you go to a bookstore, you don't see a big history of the United States. They're just, those books don't exist. It used to be a tradition. And what you do say, I think, you know, all due respect to people who write blockbuster presidential biographies and military histories, that's not an account of the idea of America. What I was interested to see was that you researched and wrote the book chronologically, which you don't have to do it that way. You can pick and choose what you want to focus on. And you tell a funny story, I think, you know, going to the library and the yeah. person at the front would ask you, because you were a frequent visitor, I imagine, <laughs> to, the, to the various libraries at Harvard, would say, what year are you on? Am I wrong about this, that it's a little bit unusual to proceed chronologically? I think it's maybe unusual. But again, like if you're writing a novel, you start with chapter one and you, you know. I never wrote a term paper from beginning to end. I would build and maybe that's the weird, maybe I'm the weird one. <laughs> mm. I would get bored and mm-hmm. I would have a block. Mm-hmm. And if you're writing, you know, point one and you have five points to make, if I was having a block on point one, I could just skip ahead to point five. And then later you come up with your seamless transitions and, and make it all work. Aside from just common sense, was there some other reason you want to do the book this way? Yeah. So I think the way that you suggest you work makes perfect sense because you're probably essentially working with the architecture of an argument. And maybe there are five points you want to make. Right. And so you can make any one of them. And, and as, you, as you build those five edifices up, like a little tower of Lego blocks, it might occur to you when you're done, you know what, actually, this one is the foundational one, and then I'm going to move this up. Or you might switch them around, right? You make mix and match. In the end, you have this beautiful Lego skyscraper, and it stands sturdy, and it looks beautiful, and it's trim and square, and you're very happy with it, Although right? it's, it's Legos. It's Legos. <laughs> so <laughs> got to be square. I don't know how beautiful, how beautiful it is, but... But this is more like laying out the tracks on a Lego yeah. track. Like you, you can't put the car down until all the... Tra- you have to start the tracks at the beginning, and yeah. you have to go somewhere, and it has to kind of close up. I always write that way at whatever length I'm working at, and and I would say pretty much always have. But that's not to say that structure is without an argument. I mean, the work of a certain kind of uh, narrative nonfiction, whether it's historical or other kind of uh, narrative nonfiction, is to embed the argument in the storytelling. So the way the story is structured it presumes that your reader is very interested in getting to the end of a story. If it's gripping enough, they care about the characters, the plot is interesting. So you start at the beginning and you're working toward the end. But then you, you presume that your reader is not that interested in your argument because you're not talking to a jury or a judge or, you know, you're not talking to people in a law firm or you're not talking to your professor, like who all are obligated to hear your arguments out and entertain them as arguments, you're talking to other people. 
So you have to, I assume, they're not that interested in the argument I'm going to make. So to embed the argument in the way I tell the story. So I can do story, 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 rising action. Argument gets kind of interesting. (laughs) Story, story, story gets more tense and fraught. Argument gets more complicated. It's a little harder to digest. When you're at the moment of like real suspense, then you can lay in the really demanding portion of the argument because the reader still wants to figure out what happened. Because they want to know what happened, right? Yeah, they want to know what happened. Who won the battle? Yeah. So you're supposed to, you know, like sort of suspend disbelief. And the idea would be (laughs) that you, as you're reading the book, you're kind of not really sure where the country's going from time to time. Like that there would be enough surprises in the storytelling that you might forget. I mean, I remember when I was listening to Slow podcast about Watergate, season one is about Watergate. I got so immersed in it that I kept thinking, is this guy going to go down? Is this Nixon guy going to, like, have to leave office? Like, I sort of forgot what happened, even uh, though I knew uh, it very well. Even though you're a historian. Because the storytelling had such a kind of sense of contingency. Let's talk about some of the themes. You make a point of saying, but there's some people who want to tell the story of America one way, maybe the conservative way, whatever that means. Uh, America is heroic and wonderful and exceptional. Then there are other people who want to tell the story of America and focus on how everything is aspirational and how you know, American history is bound up with oppression and subjugation of large groups of people and domination and imperialism and everything else. How do you negotiate those things? And what should a proper reckoning of American history be? So, yeah, I do think our history has become segregated and as polarized as our politics. And I think that's quite dangerous because it's very hard to get your bearings and figure out like, well, where are we headed? You know, if you don't have some sense of some shared sense of, of where yeah. the Well, it's hard to fact check the historians. We, we use the historians to fact check the politicians yeah. right, on yeah. television these days. But so what we really have is a two-headed history that really maps onto our polarized parties. So on the one hand, the sort of the greatness the only thing that has not been great is sort of since Vietnam. So Make America Great is kind of like a post-Vietnam decline story, but everything else is an American triumphalist, that conservative account of the United States. And then there's a kind of far-left kind of American atrocity narrative, right? Like everything that the United States has ever done in the world has been bad and, you know, begins with genocide, goes through slavery and conquest and imperialism, you know, down to where we are today. So those histories buttress political arguments, but neither of them is make sense as a historical argument. And they don't proceed, nor do they really, frankly, pretend to proceed from evidence. They proceed from ideology. But they're set forth by people. Computers are not writing these things. And they're individual humans yet. (laughs) Oh, God, that's another whole episode. But human beings along the way are creating these two opposing histories, as you say. And why is that? Is that because over time, groups of historians have had a particular ideological bias and that influences their writing? Yes. I mean, it is the case that historians are not exempt from ideological bias. Academic historians do have rules of evidence that they attempt to adhere to, and they accept the idea of their work being questioned and challenged, and ideally should be willing to revise it in the face of new scholarship. And that's not the case with ideologues. Like, Newt Gingrich is not going to revise his understanding of American history on the basis of a new article in the Journal of American History. I don't think so. I'm just, I know he does a PhD in history. So I think the thing that is necessary to understand as a historian is that both of those things are true. Like, the United States has done great things, extraordinary nation, ingenuity, the uh, engine of abundance, the uh, business history of the country, and above all, American ideals, both at home and around the world, chiefly through the challenges that social and political movements have posed to the promise uh, of those ideals. But the United States history is a bloody and, and vicious history of violence. The thing is that those are not two different accounts. They're the same account. Because same country. They're, they're mutually constitutive is, I guess, a way that we would talk about it. In the sense that, like, imagine you, it was 20 years from now and you were asked to write a history of the Trump presidency. 
you can imagine some historian who might say, you know what, I think this this era is really, the most important thing about this era is the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement. It sort of writes an account of these social movements. Or someone else comes on and says, from this era, the thing that's most important is Trump's presidency. I'm going to write a history from the vantage of the White House out and look at the relationship between Congress and the courts and the, the three branches of government. Well, you and I were both, having lived through this moment, suggest that actually you can't understand the Me Too movement absent the Trump presidency and vice versa. Right. So a proper account of this era would have to look at both of those institutions, movements, and would it need to understand how they are mutually constitutive to the degree to which the Me Too movement is a proxy war against Donald Trump. There's forces and, you won't and know, dynamics. And you won't know, specifically about the Trump presidency, what to say about it until you know, among other things— if he gets reelected. Yeah, no, we don't really, right. yeah, we don't, we don't really <laughs> and know. And what impact, and, and if there are, you know, people who try to emulate him in the future and they're, you know, licked at the polls, that tells you something different about Trump than you would be told if there's an army of folks, you know, who mimic his general approach, demeanor, politics, to the extent they're discernible, and that that becomes a movement going forward. So part of the reason is we just don't know how it's going to, we don't know how the story ends. Ourselves. We don't know how the story ends. It's an incautious scholar who would suggest anything otherwise. But right. my point here is that, like, you couldn't just look at Trump and not understand the relationship between Trump and these other institutions, or, you know, the larger world of, you know, DACA organizing or the Parkland, like the, the social movements that are, that dominate the political landscape right now are certainly at least as important as Trump's presidency to an understanding of this era. And so that's the approach that I took in looking at all of American history so that you don't get like we go kind of through the presidents and then we have these little sidebars about, say, slavery or the emergence of the women's rights movement as if those aren't politics, but that all those things be always on the page together and that the reader be asked to think about the relationship between them. Do you think that causes some people to find your history or your approach unsatisfying because it doesn't fit into one binary notion? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I I don't read reviews, but I, I get a lot of email from readers. Yeah. Uh, and that's not a thing that I generally hear. I don't think I've ever heard, like, I wish you were, I wish you had an axe, more of an right. axe to grind. <laughs> Honestly, I think people, most Americans really would like to have fewer people with axes to grind or maybe more people with very flimsy axes <laughs> to grind. Should I not read back to you something from a review? Oh, I don't know. You know, it's, it's your show. You well, can do whatever you want. I just found this. I'll just say, no, 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 no. <laughs> So this is a review by Andrew Sullivan, and he says three things in it, many positive. Uh, and I just wonder how you react to this, because it sort of gets at some of what we're talking about. He says very clearly, we need this book. He thinks it's a great book, an important book. And some people agree with Andrew Sullivan on various things, and some people don't. And then it says, you, Lepore, you pander a little to liberal sensibilities. You are withering about the new left. And then says, this is not an account conservatives will hate. Not clear to me why any of that matters and why particular folks within particular ideological camps need to like it or not like it. I'm not, that's not your purpose in the book. But do you have any reaction to that? I'm glad that he said it's not a book conservatives would <laughs> It's an odd formulation of a sentence, uh, right? Right. Grammatically, not a lot of big points for Sullivan in that. So it is a very tentative, <laughs> tentative statement. He's backing into saying something. But I'm, I appreciate that. And that was very much in my mind. And I say in the introduction, like I'm trying to build a bridge here between what seem to be completely incompatible views of the world. And I would say I have actually gotten a lot of mail from conservative readers like this. I actually didn't know a lot of the stuff. This stuff was really helpful. And I also respected, I treat the origins of the modern conservative movement at great length. This is not something not all just done in yep. American historical accounts. Uh, I spent a lot of time with Phil Schlafly, for instance. I treat even the evangelical movements of the 19th century like, with great attention and great respect, and, and also the fundamentalist movement, as I said earlier. I mean, we're pandering to liberals like— And, and withering who, about some in the sense of, like, I'm withering about Bill and Hillary Clinton, like, both of whom come across as dastardly in my account. 
I would say I have heard most from people that I was unable to restrain myself in being clear that I am no fan of the Clintons and that that's a failing because the rest of the book, people would say, is far more even-handed there than that. So maybe Sullivan missed that or maybe that just seems so obviously true to him. I'm going to send him your email. So you talk a lot about liberalism and liberalism being at risk and you talk about nationalism. Can we define our terms? What is liberalism? What is nationalism? We can define our terms, but you, I hope all the mail that disagrees and quibbles with our definitions goes to you and not to me. We probably will. Yeah. So liberalism and nationalism are, a, are really born together. They're the intellectual products of the 18th century, of the American Revolution, and especially of the French Revolution. So the liberalism that emerges in the late 18th and 19th century is a commitment to the idea that people should be free. And that governments are instituted among, in the case of this historical liberalism, among men to guarantee the rights that we are endowed with by nature and to offer that guarantee by way of constitutions, in the case of the United States, a written constitution. And that among the guarantees that a written constitution in a liberal nation state has to offer is the political equality of its citizens. And so nationalism, which really is more of a product or more closely associated with the French Revolution than with the American Revolution, is the idea that this liberalism can best be expressed through the nation state as as a rights-granting institution. In this little book, This America, I talk about the long history of liberal nationalism and the tendency of nationalism always to become illiberal, of course, around the world, but also in the kind of tracing that through the history of the United States. It is a much more argumentative than narrative book because it was sort of written as a polemic, an yeah. uh, argument that liberal nationalism remains important and that among the reasons that liberalism is so frail right now is that liberals have failed to, to defend the nation state. Is it really frail? How often has it been frail? It has often been frail, and yet strangely durable. To... So, so is, I mean, the reason I'm asking it is, how alarming is the observation that liberalism is is frail? Because a lot of people think the sky is falling, and a yeah. lot of people are feeling a lot of time on the airwaves talking about democracies and its death throes in this country. And then people say, well, remember we had this thing called the Civil War. We had the upheaval of the 60s. Based on your scholarship and writing, are there other times that have been more difficult and where liberalism has been more frail than, than this time? I have two answers to that question. One is, yes, there have been other times. And the reason it's important to assert that is to contest the frame of the question itself. I think it's important. I knew you were going to do that. I think it's important. And then you'll come back at me and you'll find me in an inconsistency. (laughs) I think it's quite important when people ask, have Americans ever been so divided? Has our, you know, our, our commitment to liberal ideas ever been so weak? To remember that Americans include people who have been held in slavery and who were held in a form of second class, less than citizenship under the regime of Jim Crow. And if we accept that American history is a history of all of us, then there is no time in the era of slavery before 1865 or before sort of effectively uh, equal rights under the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. There's been no time in any of those centuries that was not more divided than now. It's just that the people who count, I think, essentially as a shadow political party, enslaved people and people held in the regime of racial segregation, a completely powerless political party, but nevertheless a group of people with a shared political interest and objective, 
are so wholly disenfranchised that the very idea of a, of a kind of liberal commitment to liberalism is a lie, right? So the reason things feel difficult now or are more difficult now, uh, if you think of, you know, the, in the years since 1965, also the year of the Immigration Act of 1965, is that we have a much more inclusive politics and it's a, therefore a messier politics. Right. The world is different now. This is maybe an odd way of thinking about it. It's sort of when you talk about what something costs today, you adjust for inflation because knowing that something costs a dollar in 1890 doesn't tell you a lot because you don't know what you could buy for a dollar back then. In some way, you're sort of adjusting for, you know, just as inflation. Like we are now at a point where lots of people have more rights than they had before. Are you in some way saying it's a little bit silly to look back at the 1850s and say, well, that was worse. Stop complaining. Yeah. Worse for who? You know, it's yeah. just <laughs> yeah. it's just not worse. Yeah. So that's so I said I had two answers. So the first answer is, you know, that. And the second answer is there is reason to be very concerned about now. I would say that for most of my career as a historian, the thing that, you know, journalists always ask historians the question, like, has it ever been this bad? Or is there a precedent for this? And I would always, oh, I'm going to stop know. asking that question. Yeah. No, 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 no. But it's <laughs> a question, but it's like, could you ask me something else? Um, and I would always say, yeah, it's been this bad. It's not even, I'm not even interested in thinking about that anymore. There's a kind of... Um, serenity that comes from the study of the past is it's like, you know what, we're not dying of malaria. I don't have smallpox scars. My infants didn't die in infancy. Like, don't talk to me about that. That said, though, since 2015, I would say I've begun to have a more jaundiced answer to that question and say, you know, some things are actually a little worse. What happened in 2015? What are you talking about? (laughs) I mean, a lot of things happened in 2015, but, you know, I guess maybe last summer with the migrant children separated from their parents, I thought, well, this is as bad. I mean, and the numbers involved, like compared to the scale of other atrocities, is very small. But the fact that we weren't all in Washington demanding that that end immediately, the whole, like the whole country just in a sudden huge outrage, like that felt to me like a very different, a different moment from every, any moment that I have lived through. And I, you know, I've been around for a while. And I spent then a lot of time thinking about the 1930s when there's a lot of demagoguery in the United States and in a significant fascist voice on the radio. There's threats to a liberal world order all over the world. And yet there were in the 1930s eloquent writers, including poets and artists and filmmakers who defended liberalism. And their defense of liberalism in the 1930s was crucial to the success of the New Deal for all of its limitations for failing to address Jim Crow. And I'm not sure that we have, at this moment, that same defense. Do you think that Donald Trump is a demagogue? Yes. Were you in any way surprised that the United States of America could elect a demagogue? Yes. Why? (laughs) So I'm surprised that you're surprised, because obviously the study of history is a study of the past, but it teaches you something about what is possible and what the country is, is capable of. I remember reading somewhere, a writer from South America, I think, said, before Trump got elected, there's nothing to say that a demagogue can't get elected in America, just like one can get elected in South America or in Europe. So why were you surprised? Maybe that really is just a kind of Pollyannaism. I mean, maybe that's just a naivete. I guess I would put an asterisk by my yeses, which is to say that I don't think Trump necessarily got elected because he was a demagogue or on the back of his demagoguery. I think his opponent in that election was an incredibly weak candidate who waged a terrible campaign. And I think that the political opportunity available to Trump in 2016 had to do with the failure of progressives from Bill Clinton onward to offer policy reforms that relieved the suffering of the people who, like a century before, had been populists from the left. But you're talking about the general. And yeah. often when you ask this question, okay, has I he won the Republican answer. primary? Yeah, he beat 16 people. 
Yeah. Right? And that wasn't because Hillary Clinton was weak. Yeah. No, that's a good point. So I guess I spent a lot of time in 2015 writing about public opinion polling because I had an assignment to do that. It wasn't like something I sought out. But I called to a lot of very reputable public opinion survey institutes like Pew and people at Gallup about, do you remember that very first 17-person GOP debate? I do. (laughs) That huge stage, and it was going to be on Fox News. And Fox had decided to separate out a kind of um, the grown-ups table from the kids' table of the debate. They would use uh, the average of five public opinion polls. This was maybe June of 2015. And they would do that to separate people out and then also to place them in a particular location on the stage. And then also to decide what proportion of questions should go to them and what amount of time each of those candidates should have. And if you will recall, all the reputable polling agencies, NBC, Wall Street Journal poll, Pew, refused to participate and said, this is a completely indefensible use of public opinion measurement. This is only going to measure the fame of the name of these people. And Donald Trump has had a TV show for years and is a kind of cartoon character person that is like a household name. And then we have other people who are public servants who, you know, love or hate, you know, Cruz or Ruby or these people. They're not household names. Nor, you know, what Carly Fiorino, whoever these other (laughs) characters were. And Fox News went ahead anyway and sorted out the field that way. And Donald Trump took center stage. And it was kind of off to the races from there. There's just a lot of blaming going on about Facebook. And God knows I would be happy to pile on. But I do actually think the polling industry bears a lot of responsibility. That is to say, the kinds of pollsters who participated in that kind of charade very early in the political process, which just elevated a candidate to the stage in a way that then it became quite clear to other, especially other cable news stations, how great it is to have Donald Trump on screen in terms of their their revenue. And, you know, CNN famously with, remember when they did it, like everyone remembers the empty podium where you'd be watching for 45 (laughs) minutes, an empty podium where people just waiting for Donald Trump. And there's never been a reckoning about that. So I guess I think that is a really important piece of the story that we forget as we focus on social media and Russian interference. And I think this is a kind of very homegrown distortion of of the campaign of Trump that the media has a lot to answer for. Going back to something I said before, if Trump were to get reelected, how do you think that affects what history will say about the country and how will that and how will you feel about the country then? Yeah, I mean, historians, I think, walk around in their heads with like um, a graph, like right. with an X axis that's time and a Y axis that's something else. And, you know, you have a certain kind of narrative of the history of the United States. Maybe I think if, you know, kind of march toward progress in terms of realizing the promise of the Constitution and fully actually guaranteeing equal rights. And, and there's setbacks along the way, and but setbacks, you're generally but it's moving a generally, forward. generally, you know, kind of in a Thurgood Marshall kind of, you know, the way Thurgood Marshall talked about the 200 years since the Constitution on the bicentennial in 1987. It's like, I, you know, I, these 200 years are, are a story of, of incredible change. And, and we're looking at a kind of rising curve. And you can take that down, you know, all the way up to the point where Barack Obama is inaugurated in, in 2009. And then this Trump, where, where you put that plot, that dot, on the curve is a very different place. And if this is a one-off, one-term presidency and whoever of either party is elected to the White House in, in 2020 maybe isn't is a completely different part of that grid, then that's just this like outlying dot. But if we have two terms of Trump followed by Trump-like figures or two terms of Trump followed by some non-Trump figures, but then a kind of resurgence of Trumpism, <laughs> then the arc of American history looks very, very different. That's a very significant thing you're saying, right? You're saying that this presidency, if it's replicated in the next term, is so consequential 
that it throws off the entire chart that you, the well-respected historian, have kept in the back of your head over 200-plus years of American history. That, that's how big a deal this presidency might be? I think if it becomes the new direction, the, the new vector of the line, as opposed to just some weird moment, and that we really can't know. And in fact, that will be determined by the American people. That's a good segue to the other thing that may happen, and that's impeachment. And you spent some amount of time talking about the couple of times there has been an actual impeachment trial. And a question that is swirling around that people keep asking about is what is the standard for impeachment? And, you know, politicians are not very consistent on this. <laughs> Depending on whether it was Nixon, Clinton, or now, they have different views about whether the House should have a vote, whether evidence should be brought to bear in a particular way. And one question that I've addressed on the show, but I know you've talked about this from a historical perspective, is what is the requirement that the president of the United States have committed an actual statutory crime in order for impeachment to be appropriate? Yeah, so there is no such requirement There's whatsoever. not? There's none. Okay, we can go home now. Okay. <laughs> okay, thanks. Well, let me just quote back to you something that you have said recently. And I've not seen it put quite this particular way. I mean, you say, as you've just remarked, nothing in American history from the founding of its earliest colonies suggests that an impeachable offense has to be an indictable crime, not for the king's men, not for judges and justices, and not for the president of the United States. But then you say, most of us cannot commit such staggering outrages as to direct the FBI to spy on our enemies or enlist foreign powers to interfere in our elections. The president has powers that only a president can exercise or abuse. Were these powers beyond the reach of the people's power, impeachment would be a dead letter. And so that's a really important way of thinking about it that I don't think I hear on the airwaves a lot. Everyone talks about Donald Trump as if he's you and me, and the same rules apply to him. And in so many ways that we've seen through the unfolding of the Mueller investigation, the president can't be indicted because the Office of Legal Counsel says that the sitting president can't be indicted. But you and I can't pick up the phone and call the Ukrainian president. We don't have power to abuse in the way only a president does, not even a senator, not even a governor. Talk about that for a second. Yeah. I mean, just when you think about it, if you if you pause and think about it, it makes no sense that the only thing that you could impeach a president for is is a crime, something that's on the books is a crime that, that anyone could commit. I mean, there are crimes that only presidents can commit that might still be on the books. And God knows Donald Trump has probably broken a lot of them. But it's really kind of neither here nor there because we have to be able to hold the president accountable for deeds that he can only do because he is the president of the United States. So you can search through the law books for from here to, you know, when the cows come home and you won't find specified there this, you know, whole series of things that, that a president could possibly do. I just think that's important to remember. I mean, there's a whole long precedent, I would say, a kind of common sense observation about impeachment and what constitutes an impeachable offense. There is also a deep historical argument that supports the position that it's not necessary that an impeachable defense be an in indictable crime. I mean, the impeachment of John Pickering, Supreme Court justice, he was just bananas. I mean, he <laughs> was just, was this, 1797 or something? Yeah. He, uh, so he was one of the first. He just lost his mind. And he had to be removed from office, and he didn't have the wherewithal to understand that he needed to step down. Did and he, have, he was did impeached. He, have, did he, he, have, have, he committed no crime whatsoever. Did he have narcissistic personality disorder? <laughs> They didn't have that in the 18th century. <laughs> oh, they had it. They just didn't have, an, just didn't have a name for it. I bet they had it in, in droves. Is it also true then, because this gets complicated for people, right? Is it also true then, in your view, that certain things that might technically be a crime, a president shouldn't be impeached for? Such as? You know, small crimes, turnstile jumping. People are often very confused about the phrase high crimes, mm -hmm. which sounds like a big deal. And misdemeanors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and in the common parlance and understanding of misdemeanor, you think about things like mm -hmm. turnstile jumping mm -hmm. or, or, a, or a small bore, you know, check fraud or something. Mm -hmm. Should you upend the entire country and undo an election for a minor crime? I, 
you know, yeah. uh, it depends. So, uh, you know, as I say, this is a, a New Yorker piece I, I wrote recently. Every impeachment is an experiment in what impeachment is. You know, there, there's just, it's such a there's slender not body right. of, of <laughs> right. precedent on which to, to draw general see, rules. Don't you love it when politicians, and they're in both parties, talk very augustly about the historical precedent of impeachment. Right, and they're talking about two cases. Two times. <laughs> two times it happened. And, and in particular, they talk about, in this case on the, on the Trump side, that no one has ever been impeached for conduct like this. Well, I don't know if that's a point in your favor. <laughs> it's like, you know, no president is actually ever engaged in conduct like this. And, and then the other side can point to all sorts of writings by the founders showing that one of the reasons they care about impeachment, not just because of the, the worry about corruption of the Electoral College, but also they were concerned about foreign influence. And we've actually not had, in those other two times, deep and serious, credible questions about foreign no. influence. No. In 1974, the Democrats on the House Impeachment Inquiry Committee kept hearing from Republican members, you know, okay, so you've showed us Nixon has done some crummy things. So he's, you know, he's a rascal. He's a rogue. But, you know, probably all presidents have done stuff like this. We just don't know it. And so the um, House Democrats said, well, Actually, we, that's knowable. I mean, that's not like a, it's not like a mystery. Right. And so they called C. Van Woodward at Yale, the historian, and said, can you prepare a report for us on all the bad stuff American presidents have done through history? And we need it right away because we're trying to proceed with this <laughs> we, impeachment. We, we, can't, we, can't, we don't need a 900-page deal of poor treatment. We yeah, so quick. Woodward called up, you know, a couple of his friends who were experts in political history of particular eras. They called in their graduate students and everybody dropped everything, you know, turned in their spring semester grades, and then dedicated themselves. They sorted out, they assigned all the presidents, wrote this report. It's a fascinating report of the presidential misconduct of every president, beginning with George Washington. And then C. Van Woodward was going to write a, an introduction was assessing whether anything that anyone else had ever done stood in comparison to what Nixon stood accused of. And he just about to turn in the report and Nixon resigned. So Woodward was really pissed off because he's very <laughs> proud of this report. And they like all worked all summer I don't on even, it. Did, it. did it see the light of day? Yeah. So okay. you know what? It never got entered into the congressional record because it was not submitted, formally submitted. He was uh -huh. about to write his introduction. So he called up a publishing house and said, will you publish my thing? Because I would like to publish it because we did all this work. He writes this scathing introduction about how nothing anyone else has done ever before. is anything like what Nixon uh, had been accused of doing. It gets published in huge numbers, and then it just tanks. Nobody, Everyone's like, thank God we don't have to think about Richard Nixon anymore, <laughs> so no one reads it. It just disappears. Yeah. I went to check it out from the Widener Library at Harvard last year for a piece I was writing for The New Yorker, and I was only the second person who'd ever checked it out at the library since ever? 1974. Yeah, no one had read it. But so I went and I looked up all the historians who'd worked on that report who were still alive. One of them was 95, one of them was late 80s. And I said, so remember that report? There, Oh, yeah, they had great stories about it. <laughs> and uh, super fun talking to them. I said, so, so what if you were asked to update it now, like compare what Trump, this was a year ago, which was like the Michael Cohen moment, maybe the Paul Manafort, right. Michael Cohen. You're like, oh, Jesus, what next? And, <laughs> and they all just laughed when I said, like, how do you compare everything up to Nixon, including Nixon with Trump? They're like, well, yeah. Not even it's close. Not, it's not even close. Who was the worst, if you can recall from reading that report last year, before Nixon? So Harding was bad, and Grant was unintentionally bad. Grant had some, I think it was his attorney general, this guy named Orville something. Redenbacher? Yeah, who set no, up an office. that's the popcorn guy, who, I know. Who had a, um, put a desk of, for a friend of his in his office to just, like, accept bribes. No. <laughs> and, and Grant felt really sad for him when he had, like, his friend killed himself when it was discovered and... I'm pretty sure it was Grant. He had Orville appointed um, the keeper of the lighthouses, so he had to spend the rest of his days going from lighthouse to lighthouse inspecting the lighthouses, which I think Giuliani could maybe take that up <laughs> in late uh, life. And, and, who, and who were the most pristine? 
George Washington couldn't, yeah. couldn't tell a lie, right? Yeah, no, Washington wasn't involved in any particular chicanery. Lincoln's pretty clean. Yeah, you know, the thing is what, what C. Van Woodward said is most of it's just petty graph and sort of political appointments that, you know, to kind of lesser people who didn't deserve the appointments and then who later got into trouble. It's very infrequently that the president himself had done something bad. It was actually that he had appointed favorites, rewarding campaign donors or whatever, who used the office for, for their own uh, financial gain. So the, the touchstone from your perspective on impeachment for Trump or anyone else in the future, it's not necessarily a technical violation of a statute, but fair to say, you know, a clear assessment of abuse of power and general fitness for office. That by definition, if two thirds of the Senate, you know, bipartisan supermajority agrees, that suffices. I would add to that definition that it actually has to betray the national interest. Yeah. That's where the turnstile jumping doesn't matter. I mean, I suppose you could attempt an impeachment for a misdemeanor in that sense. But in my reading of the understanding of impeachment, where you can add to the N all the judicial impeachments, I mean, it's not just two. There you have, we have more than an N of two. It has to be an exertion of the power of the office that betrays the national interest, abuses your own power, and in some ways betrays the spirit of the republic. Should Bill Clinton have been impeached? And if yes, should he have been convicted at trial? And where do you put that in the spectrum? Of yeah, I, uh, I don't see it. I don't see it as having been impeachable. I see it as having been really bad, pretty crummy. Um, right, but there's an example, you know, technical perjury. There's an example of, a, of yeah. an actual crime yeah. that, in, in your view, doesn't rise to the level because it was not about the national interest. Yeah, I mean, the high in high crimes, and, and the, you know, one interpretation means high crimes and high misdemeanors, yeah. is rising to the level of the interest of the state. I mean, the other thing people forget about all this is that makes no sense to me when you say that high crimes and misdemeanors and, and the impeachment function in the Constitution needs to be coextensive with, like, the, the enormous criminal code is that the result of being convicted of a crime often means you're subjected to prison, right? Mm -hmm. The consequence of being impeached and convicted in the Senate is you just lose your job. And there are all sorts of contexts in which, including police officers, teachers, all sorts of folks who are the subject of a criminal prosecution or, or a criminal investigation, there's not enough quantum of evidence to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt in connection with a violation of an actual criminal statute, but they get fired anyway. They mm -hmm. get removed from their office. So you know, given what the consequence is for the person who's the subject of the inquiry, the target of the inquiry, it doesn't make a lot of sense that the standard for politicians in the Senate and the House should be criminal violation. Yeah, no, I entirely agree with that. I got you to entirely agree with something. Yeah. I'm very so happy I'm about, agreeable. I'm very happy about I'm that. Agreeable. Do you make political predictions? I don't. You know, when you get a PhD in history, they make you swear <laughs> a blood oath that you'll never offer a prediction. So not every historian writes about the present. Yeah, you're really not supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> it's so why, a violation so why do you, of the guild. why do you do it all the time? <laughs> So I think that it's been a real sorry consequence for public discourse that historians backed out of public life after Vietnam, and with good reason, right? Like, I think that the idea that what historians do is prop up the nation state and defend the nation state in public, and that the nation state required critique, like that the Vietnam, uh, that there was a kind of complicity of intellectuals, certainly social scientists. So, like, I understand the retreat, and I understand the argument against presentism, but I do think that you know, when you turn on the television and you watch cable news and there are people there offering up historical analysis, they're not historians. I mean, generally speaking, there certainly there are some and there's some excellent people. I mean, to be like with a broad brush, indict all these people. But there's a lot of people that are just, they're hucksters, right? And they'll name, offer up name, whatever pap about history that seems to be selling at the moment. Name a huckster. I'm not going to name a huckster. <laughs> <laughs> name name a huckster. one. We'll, we'll bleep it out. Uh, like I'm trying, trying to think of a dead huckster. <laughs> oh, dead hucksters you can defame because it's not defamation. It might be a, might be a what, high crime, a high yeah, crime or misdemeanor. Do you have advice for, for everyone or do you have advice more specifically for young women 
who want to follow your path? You know, I, people ask me that a lot and I... It's another one of those questions. That yeah, no, 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 it's not, it's not a fair question, but I have been really lucky and I, um, I'm a messed up person, but the way I'm messed up is I need to write all the time. So if I'm not writing, I really am a mess. It makes me super happy to write. Right. I'm the opposite. So what I really need this most to people not be are, writing. Most people are the opposite. <laughs> so I'm like, I can't be a model for like it's that's just it's just a derangement, right? Like it happens to be work really well for me. But if you don't have that intense need and desire to do whatever the thing it is, like that happens to work really well in my profession. So I can't like say, oh, emulate me. Like that's that's a in any other if it were anything else, it would just be a vice, like the need that I have to be always writing something. I do think though rejecting the you have to always like to the degree that one's resources in whatever field or job you have it is possible to do and not lose your job they're rejecting the just a bullshit self-importance of like well i'm sorry i I mean unless you're doing heart surgery most of what we're doing every day now that this isn't a really important conversation like most of it would be like you know what i'd rather be at the little league game like you know what here's the thing (laughs) it's this is the day i was thinking i would teach my kid how to ice skate okay so i never taught my kids how to ice skate i really regret that but you know like this is this is not the day that i need to be here at this at this board meeting i mean i'm i'm resigning from the board like i just feel like we don't allow that we expect that 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 seems like weakness how can that not be strength i kind of going back to your clarence darrow just to circle around you know it is an act of integrity to defend the damned and it is an act of integrity to turn away from assignment in order to actually be there with people that you love and take care of them it's your parents your children your cousin someone from work someone who lives in your building caring for people is is, is what we do professor jill lapore it's been a pleasure thanks for being on yeah thank you The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To hear the Stay Tuned bonus with Jill Lepore and get the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast, go to cafe.com slash insider. Right now, you can try a Cafe Insider membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Jill Lepore. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. And the CAFE team is David Tatashore, Julia Doyle, Carla Pierini, David Kurlander, Calvin Lord, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva! More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. 
Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.